Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that through these things he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let's bow our heads together and ask God's blessing on our study of his word this morning. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word to refresh us, to encourage us, to teach us about reality, and to help us to understand why things are the way they are. That the basic problem for the human race is not economic, it's not something related to some... uh, issue related to government or administration or education or any of the other numerous things that people choose to be the source of the problem, that the problem is within each of us because we are born spiritually dead and we are without hope. But you have given to us your son to die on the cross for us, that we might be transformed, made alive together in him, raised together, seated together with Christ in the heavenlies, and that you have given to us blessings beyond anything that we can ask or think. And Father, we thank you for what we have learned in these first three chapters of Ephesians. And as we review today, we pray that you will help us to Just submit these things into our thinking, realizing that in light of all that you have given us, that you have saved us for a purpose. We have been bought with a price, therefore we are not our own, and challenge us with that great desire to grow to spiritual maturity and serve you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So today in chapters... Two and three, we're going to focus on what is termed by Paul in this section, that mystery, that previously unrevealed reality that God kept in his secret counsel through all of eternity, that after the cross, after the burial, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, that 10 days later there would be something new that would be born. It was on the day, the feast day, that the Jews called Shavuot. It's today. Today is Pentecost. And so this is the anniversary of the birth of the church. There was no church before this. The church began on that day in A.D. 33, and it was something that caught Satan and the demons by complete surprise because God did something for us in making us members of that body that all who would believe in Christ as Savior would be in that body 
and all who are in that body of Christ would be given untold blessings that we would be uh, enriched. For the text says that we have the wealth of Christ at our disposal and that this is now ours. And yet we live so often as if we're... uh, as if we are living in the gutter down in the worst part of town. And yet the inheritance, the possession that God has given to us is beyond anything that we can ask or think. And that basically sums up these two chapters, but we're going to look at it in a little more detail. Okay, we're coming up on Ephesians chapter 4. And that begins with the statement, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, he is addressing them this to the Ephesian church and to them as Gentiles. And one of the important things that I pointed out last time and as we've gone through these chapters is that when Paul uses the word you, He's not just talking about you Ephesians. He's talking about you Gentiles because the church at Ephesus was primarily a Gentile church. And when he uses the word us or we, he uses it in two senses. The first way in which he uses it is the way he used it back in verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Well, who were those who first trusted in Christ? Those were the Jews who were there on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, and then up until chapter 10 in the book of Acts, it's all Jews that are being saved. And then God sent Peter to the household of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and this is what opened the door. Peter had the keys, okay? He had the keys at Pentecost. He had the keys for the Samaritans. He's there with the, with the uh, Gentiles to open the door of the church to Gentiles who we learn in this section become joint heirs with the Jews in Christ. We are God's possession. We saw that last time in chapter 1. So the therefore here is to say in light of all that we have in Christ. Now, I'm not going to go through this this morning. I did a little exercise yesterday, and I need to review it two or three more times and see if I can get the list right, and then maybe I'll type it up. But some years ago, probably before I was born, in the 40s, Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and for whom Chafer Seminary is named, Uh, completed his eight volumes of a systematic theology. And in there, he listed 30, now I've forgotten the exact number, I think originally it was 32 things that Christ did for us at the instant of salvation. And there have been those who have written tracts on that and taught on that, and it's been expanded to 33 things and 34 things and 40 things and 42 things and 105 things and 115 things. And I think pastors have gotten into an ego contest to, contest to see how many things they can come up with, which is why I don't ever talk about it, because you can't reduce it to a finite number. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and it's not just 32 things. 
But just in going through chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians, I listed 32 things, and half the things that Dr. Chafer listed aren't in the list. So there's just a tremendous number more, all that is ours uh, in Christ. And so because we have that, Paul is challenging them to walk worthy, to live in a worthy manner, not not to get the blessings, but because it is an act of gratitude to God. And we live in one of the most ungrateful ages and with some of the most ingracious people on the planet now. But we are to respond in gratitude and serve the Lord. That's what he means, worthy of the calling with which you were called. And that's what the first three chapters are talking about, is what that calling is. And as Paul finished that, he is so overwhelmed by everything that he has written and in his contemplation of what God has done for us, then in his benediction, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And that's his reflection going back to chapter 1, verse 3, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Those two doxologies uh, anchored this, the first three chapters. Above anything that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us, and in chapter 1, we saw that power that works in us is the power that, ro- that raised Christ from the dead. We have access to that same power in our spiritual life. According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by or through, by means of Christ Jesus to all generations. Again, that corporate idea of the church, which runs all the way through the first three chapters. So we started off with this review last time. We looked at the salutation in the first two verses. Then we looked at that long and long sentence, 1, 3 to 14, with difficult concepts that are often mistranslated related to things that God chose us. But we stopped there. It's us in him. It's a corporate concept and that we were uh, foreordained, praharizo, were only used five times, and uh, rarely in secular Greek. So a lot of people pontificate that they know what it means. And if you go back to secular Greek, it has the idea of appointing or setting off a boundary, appointing something to a purpose. And that's exactly what it says. It doesn't say that we were uh, appointed to salvation. It says we were uh, appointed for the purpose that, I've got to find, find the verse, I've lost it, um, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to his will. So the appointment is to adoption as sons. That never happened in the Old Testament. Israel as a nation was adopted. But this focuses on all of those who are in Christ are adopted as sons. That's our appointment. It's it's distinctive to the church and those who are in Christ. So contrary to how this is normally handled by many people, this is talking about this corporate entity that is in Christ. And then there is Paul's first prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, where we ended last time. And now we're going to go through the rest of this, believe it or not. We'll see. 
that in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are basically four main sections before the doxology. The first is in Ephesians 2, uh, 2 through 10, or 2, 1 through 10, actually, God's inclusion of the Gentiles in a by grace through faith salvation. That's the key is understanding that is functions as a phrase, and it, it, we are not saved. Uh, the gift of God is not the faith, as we'll see in just a minute. It is the whole thing. It is this by grace through faith salvation, the whole package. And then from 2.11 to 22, having talked about how we enter into the body of Christ, he now talks about what God has done in the body of Christ in bringing the Gentiles as equal heirs into the body of Christ to create one new man, one new body, one new household, one new temple, so that there's no longer a division as there was under the law between Jew and Gentile, so that the, the enmity between Jew and Gentile has been removed by the cross, and then both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God so that Christ is our peace. That is a fundamental issue in today's world that we have to grapple with. Then we come to this parenthetical aside from chapter in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, where Paul talks about this mission that God has given him because what has been given him is the stewardship, the responsibility, the administration of this mystery that is previously unrevealed information that was not revealed at all, wasn't even hinted at in Old Testament revelation, and that uh, we now have new revelation about what God is doing with those who are believers, and it relates to this new entity, the body of Christ. And then he comes back uh, to a prayer, picking up his thought at the end of chapter 2. And we have Paul's second prayer in 3, 14 through 19, concluding in that great doxology of, of the last couple of verses. So we've looked at chapter 1, and now we're down to Roman numeral 3, God's inclusion of the Gentiles in a by grace through faith Salvation. I'm going to skip that slide. So we've gone through. Now I just realized I got carried away this morning, and I was doing so much I didn't get back to edit edit out some of those slides. So you didn't miss anything. That was just review. Now look at chapter two. Chapter two, one through seven, is another long long sentence. You have in the first part of chapter 2, you have this sentence from 1 through 7, and then you have another another sentence in uh, chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 8 and 9, and then you have your summary statement in chapter, in verse 10, rather. So I've highlighted a couple of things for you. He starts off, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now that phrase, he made alive, isn't in the original. It's The original has it down in verse 5, where I've colored it uh, purple again. But in the English translations, many of them do this, they pull it up here because you have this convoluted sentence at the beginning and you don't know 
what it's talking about until you get down to verse 5. So in order to make it read better and be more um, uh, more understood, more easily understood by people, they put it up in the front. And you is how it actually reads in the in the original. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. So in the first three verses, we're going to see this problem, and then we have the first of two but God's in chapter 2. We have one here in 2.4, and then we'll see another one when we get into uh, chapter chapter 2. So, but God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything else in those first seven verses is just telling us additional information about his main point, and that is that these three things happened to us the instant we believed in Christ, and you didn't feel anything. You didn't know anything about it. You didn't have a rosy glow. You didn't feel warm all over. You didn't feel anything, any liver quiver or anything like that. But you only learn about this when you study the Bible. That's why we're supposed to study the Bible, because we don't know what we have because it's not experiential. We can't see it, taste it, touch it, feel it, measure it. We have to go to the Scriptures to learn it. That we were made alive together because we were spiritually dead. And this is the problem that he mentions in the first two verses. He talks about the Gentile problem. And it is... He is saying, and you Gentiles, he uses a plural you all the way through here, which is why I've highlighted it. And he is saying, and you all who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, that is, in those trespasses and sins you walked. You lived there. You didn't have any other option. You were born spiritually dead with a sin nature that was your control, uh, command and control center, and you didn't have any alternative. Neither did I, neither does anybody else until we're saved. In which y'all walked according to the course of this world, and we studied this a lot, the course of this world is following some form of satanic thought. The world system is a manifestation of the creature trying to make sense of life, trying to find meaning and hope and purpose and joy in this life apart from God. And there's untold numbers of of, uh, religions and philosophies and opinions that tell people how you can have a a purposeful life, a meaningful life, and how you'll somehow live forever all on the basis of human viewpoint, which is really Satan's viewpoint. And that's what the Bible means by the world system, all the ideas and opinions that man has about how to make everything work. And so the Gentiles walked according to the course of this world, which is according to, see, it just adds to it, the prince of of the power of the air, that's Satan. And so the course of this world is according to the prince of the power of the air. It is Satan's world system. 
And that is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. But Paul isn't just pointing his finger at the Gentiles. In verse 3, he says, among whom also we, we who, who's we? You, y'all were the Gentiles. We are the Jews who first came to trust Christ as Messiah. Among whom also we all, among whom is what? the sons of disobedience. So Paul says there's no difference. We're doing the same thing. And he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, our sin nature, fulfilling the desires of the sin nature and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Who are the others? The Gentiles. So, one through three condemns everybody. We are all born spiritually dead, which is defined later in the book in Ephesians 4.18, where Paul says, having their understanding dark, and talking about the unsaved, being alienated from the life of God. That's what spiritual death is. We are alive physically, but we are separated from the life source, which is God. And so we are alienated from the life of God. So we are the walking dead. That's every human being since Adam sinned is the walking dead. The only thing that uh, brings them to life is faith in Christ. The solution is described in verses 4 through 6. But God... And then he stops. We have to understand why God did what he did. But God, who is rich in mercy, it's God's grace. It has nothing to do with us. It is all on the basis of God's character. That's why John 3.16, Romans 5.8 are among Christians' favorite verses because they talk about the fact that it is from God's love that he sent his son. God loved us in such a way. What John is saying there is this is the example of the extent of God's love for us. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us. See, it echoes the same thought. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, not because he saw anything good in us, because there was nothing good in us. We're spiritually dead, corrupted by sin. So God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, I want you to just put a mental place marker right there, and I'm going to take you quickly to get down to... um, the section in 317 to 20, where Paul is praying. And he says, and what he's praying for is for the first result, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That is, that that Christ will not just indwell you, but that he will fill you with his character. This is a spiritual life issue, that it's related to abiding in Christ as we study that he may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, having already been rooted and grounded in what? Love. That takes us back to John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and breadth and height, and to know the love of Christ, to understand that which was foundational to our salvation, God's mercy, 
God's love. So, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we, now he's talking about we, Jew and Gentile, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us, Jew and Gentile, alive together. These words are so important. When you go back to the Old Testament, God makes one racial division. It started in Genesis 12, and God says there's going to be a racial distinction between Jew and Gentile. All other racial distinctions that have operated through history are man-made. Which is, which is the most significant, what the racial division God made or the racial division that man makes? The racial division that God makes. So this is being obliterated because of what Christ did in the cross. And they, the, the consequence of that is if God obliterates the, race, the only legitimate racial division, which was the one he established, then all other racial divisions are no longer aren't existing anymore either. He eradicates all of them because he eradicates the only legitimate one It by, by virtue of what he did, eradicates all of them. Therefore, this passage is so important for being the starting point for any kind of discussion about, about race or ethnicity in this country. But this is being horribly challenged today in some extremely sophisticated ways And we'll get to that when we get into the second part of the chapter. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. Now that is so important that he puts that there because when he says by grace you have been saved, what is that explaining? Salvation there, by grace you have been saved, explains being made alive together. So when we see the word later on in Ephesians 2.8, and it says, by grace you have been saved, what does that mean contextually? By grace you have been made alive. It's regeneration. So here Paul clearly is using the word saved to refer to regeneration that happens the instant we trust in Christ the Savior. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together. This is our legal position. You didn't feel this, but at the instant you trusted Christ legally, you were elevated to the right hand of God the Father in Christ. So you're raised together and made us sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's our position. That's who we are. That's our identity is those who are seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Now, why did he do all of this? He didn't do this for anyone who's saved before the day of Pentecost. He does this because he wants this to be an exhibition of his grace that will go into the trophy case in heaven for all to see for all of eternity. And this, it, we are a, an example and we are a testimony and we are a witness to the magnificent, multifaceted grace of God. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding wealth of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In, in these passages, 
you have mercy one time, you have uh, love one time, you have grace twice, and you have uh, kindness once. All of that emphasizes this is undeserved, unmerited. It's only because of God's great goodness and his love for us. So he has made us alive together. He's regenerated us, and that means being saved. And that salvation, when we get to Ephesians 2.8, is through faith. One of the things you often hear today, especially from those who are identified as Calvinists, is that uh, regeneration must be preceded by faith because a spiritually dead person can't do anything, can't believe. Well, that's a false understanding of what it means to be spiritually dead because I showed you being spiritually dead is not uh, uh, not making you like a corpse. Spiritual death is being alienated from the life of God. So you don't have life. You don't have righteousness. And so here we're saying that, we're, that, that you don't have to be regenerated, but that it's clear that regeneration comes after faith. It comes through faith. Faith is first. If I ask you directions on how to go to the kitchen and you point back there to those doors and you say you go through the doors to get to the kitchen, what comes first, going through the doors or getting to the kitchen? Through the doors always precedes where your, what your destiny is. And the destiny here is regeneration, and it's through faith, which means faith must precede regeneration. We are saved, born again, made alive together through faith. So I created this little diagram. Faith is the channel. It's the pipe through which life will flow. And it has a valve, and that's our volition, our will. We trust in Christ, and something's going to flow through that pipe. Now, the spiritually dead sinner has to turn on the valve, and when he does, then he's going to get the water of life. It comes through faith. So regeneration does not precede faith. Faith precedes regeneration. So being saved it means that we're being regenerated, and that's being alive together. When it says in the scripture, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, you will find people who will say that that is faith. But the word that in the Greek is in the neuter gender. Faith is feminine. Grace is feminine. So these are not talking about, it can't be referred to by a neuter pronoun. But in the Greek, when you're referring to multiple objects or you are quoting from a couple of two or three book, different books, you always refer to what to, to a plurality with a neuter pronoun. So what this neuter pronoun is referring to is not grace, not salvation, and not faith. It is referring to a by grace through faith salvation. The whole package, it is by faith, by grace, through faith, you have been regenerated. And there's a purpose. That's the last sentence in the paragraph. For we, that is we Gentiles, are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus, I mean, for, excuse me, that we is we, Jew and Gentile together in Christ, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, not because of good works, but for good works. We are not there because we've done anything to merit it. Christ did all of the merit. And, but we are placed in Christ for a purpose, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That should be what characterizes our life. The word walking is a metaphor for living one's life, how they conduct their life. So that brings us to the second part, God's creation of the new church, which is one new man, one new body, one new building, and one new temple by the work of Christ on the cross, which removed the barriers between Jew and Gentile and between all humanity and God. And that summarizes it. So first he reminds them of what they once were. And this is the only command that I can find in the first three chapters. I've heard people say there are no commands. They just missed this one. There's one command, remember. All the commands in Ephesians are in, related to the Christian life, which are in the second part of the, of the uh, epistle. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, and then he reminds them, remember, according to the law, you're the uncircumcision. The Jews are the circumcision, but this is just the physical ritual of circumcision. What really matters, he'll go on to say elsewhere, is that is spiritual circumcision, which is taught in Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 30, that there is a spiritual circumcision. They, that It's very clear in Deuteronomy that there is both the physical, but the physical repre- represents the spiritual, which is being separated to God uh, for service. And then he's going to list five things in verse 12, that you were without Christ, you had no Messiah. Really, you catch it better if you translate it without Messiah. They had no messianic hope. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The law separates them. They are other. They can only go so far in the temple and no further unless they become full converts to Judaism. Third, they are strangers from the covenants of promise. There's no real promises there other than they will be blessed by the Jews, that through the descendants of Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Fourth, that they have no hope, no confident expectation of eternal life or anything, and they are without God in the world. They have their multiplicity of gods and goddesses, but they are without Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim. Ephesians 2.13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now the term blood of Christ is echoed in... um, Verse 16, with the phrase, putting to death. So blood of Christ is really just a metaphor for Christ's death on the cross. And verse 218 says that through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Through his death, we have access. Jew and Gentile together have access to the Father. Now, verse 14 says, for he himself, that is Jesus Christ, our peace. He makes the peace who has made both one, both who? Jew and Gentile are now one. The barrier is going to be removed. He broke down the middle wall of separation, which is described in the next verse as the law. So the law put a wall between Jew and Gentile, and that was physically represented by a low wall 
in the courtyard around the temple called the Sorek, and this is where uh, they had a sign that Gentiles could go no, fur- no further. So he himself is our peace because he abolished in his flesh the enemy, the enmity. So his death on the cross removes the barrier between Jew and Gentile. It's the law, to make sure we get it, he calls it the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For what purpose? To create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. There's no basis for any distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore or any other racial distinction. Anybody who does is a racist by definition, but we'll get to that in a minute because the other side now is redefining everything, so that's where the battle is. And that he might reconcile them both to, to God, so this is the second barrier that's taken out of the, out of the way, and they'll reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Okay, what did he do? He himself is our peace, and he broke down the wall of separation. How did he do it? He did it by abolishing in his flesh that enmity at the cross. Why did he do it? In order to create in himself one new man and to make peace between Jew and Gentile, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. And so that result is that he came and preached, this is the first advent, peace to you who are far off and to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So I'll go through these slides quickly. You have Jews and Gentiles separated by the law, the cross wipes out that barrier. There's also a sin barrier between Jew and Gentile and God, and So there's two areas of enmity between God and all mankind and between Jew and Gentile. And the cross makes peace and reconciles us to God. Now today we are faced with something new, a new danger. It's been out there. We didn't know what to call it. It has, uh, we, we keep hearing things and we just think they're nuts. But we have to understand this. If you were going to some place, like let's say Irian Jaya, where there's still a number of primitive tribes, and you want you are a missionary and you want to take them the gospel, one of the first things that you have to do is you have to learn their language. So you have to go live with them and you have to learn their language. And when you learn their language, you're going you're going to learn about their culture because there is a a, a uh, internal intricate connection between language and a culture's worldview because the language is going to have words that have a lot of words that describe the things that are important to that group where, wherever they are if if they're in the desert they may have a lot of different words for water and life or things like that if they're up in area where there's a snow they'll have different words for snow so any culture is going to have cert, uh, a certain bank of words, and those words are all loaded with baggage. All of their words will be loaded with biblical, with with excuse me, theological baggage. 
because the root issue in life is our view of God. And so when you're, as a missionary, going to a culture that's never heard the gospel, you have to learn all kinds of things about that culture otherwise, and their language. Otherwise, you're going to say things that make perfect sense to you, but you're thinking within a biblical framework. But they may be taken in a completely wrong way by the people you're talking to. Don Richardson and moved his family in with a... A group of primitive Stone Age tribes of the Sawi people in Irian Jaya back in the 60s. And what they discovered was when they finally got learned enough of the language and told the gospel story, when they heard about Judas's betrayal of Jesus, they cheered for Judas. What he had not yet learned was in their worldview, being able to deceive somebody was a great value that was high on their standards of ethics and the greatest thing that you could do is to deceive somebody to con them so much that it cost them their life that was it that was the ethical prize and so he had to go back to the drawing board and rethink how he communicated to a lang- to a people whose language completely reversed right and wrong that's where we are. So I've got a. this is a very quick, we'll hit this more and more. It's too much for any of us to take this right now. But I want to show you that, we, that this whole thing, you've heard the term many times now, critical social justice or critical race theory, that this is another religion. According to Vody Bachman, and I've got his book here, he is, he, he's actually spent a lot of time in Houston in the past, but he is a, a black pastor and theologian, and he's written a book. He has a lot of videos out there on social justice. I recommend the one on social justice versus biblical justice. Uh, because he just came out with this book, there's a lot of interviews on YouTube. You can look for them. But it is, it is outstanding, and I've sort of tried to condense some of the things that he has said in this book into this diagram, which is just sort of a starting point for helping us understand this. And then there's a town hall book review called Why Christianity and Critical Race Theory Cannot Coexist, and that will be put in with the blurb on the, on the website for this. But here is the foundation of what they're building. There are four cornerstones in their view. One is Karl Marx's conflict theory. Marx contributes the fact that there are different groups in society and they are at war with one another and that those who are in power are oppressing the others. So you have basically two groups, the oppressors and the oppressed. And so in in critical social justice, it divides the world into those who are the oppressors and those who are the oppressed. That comes right out of Marxism. Then an Italian Marxist kind of changes things a little bit. His name was Anton Gramsci, and he introduces a concept of cultural hegemony. And in cultural hegemony, excuse me, cultural hegemony, hegemony talks about a, a consolidation of power. And so he takes that and he applies that to the dominant social class uh, that sets the agenda and imposes all the rules upon society in order to perpetuate their dominance, which means they're perpetuating social uh, inequality. And 
the other thing he contributes is, because all of this grows out of postmodernism, that there's no such thing as an objective knowledge. You can't have objective knowledge or objective truth. But see, that completely contradicts the Bible because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And he prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So this completely contradicts the Bible. You cannot be a Christian and buy into anything built on this foundation. Then there's the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. And so in the Frankfurt School, they modified Marx's strategy based on what they called critical theory, which in itself is a philosophy. And then, and the basic idea was in critical theory to explain these rules of inequality in society and the agenda of the oppressed to, to continue the inequity. All of these are key words. And then the last one is Derek Bell, who formulates this critical legal studies, which is really a radical leftist movement that challenges traditional uh, legal scholarship. So that's the foundation. On that foundation, uh, they build their whole worldview, and the capstone is critical social justice. Is that what the Bible teaches? Not in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, we have the new temple of the body of Christ it's a biblical worldview, and there's no, all racial distinctions have been eradicated. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets, the foundation of the church. The cornerstone is how it's translated in English. Actually, it has more of the idea of the capstone. It is the Lord Jesus Christ is the capstone. And in the body, in this Edifice, this new temple being constructed, this new building is the body of Christ, a new entity where there are no racial, ethnic, economic, or gender distinctions. Anybody who makes distinctions in the body of Christ based on those categories is a racist or something else. But see how they are defining, they're redefining all these terms to fit critical theory. And we have to understand that. And I'm Look, I can't bury myself in this stuff for long. I just feel like I'm pulling myself out of a garbage dump when I spend a lot of time reading what they're saying. But we have to understand this. It's important. Peter spends a lot of time in Second Peter 2 and 3 talking about the characteristics of the false teachers. Now and then I get criticism from people who say, you know, you spend too much time talking about what's going on in the world. Well, Don Richardson had had somebody teach him what was going on with the Saudi people. He sure would have avoided a lot of mistakes. And, the, and Peter explains a lot of the characteristics of these false teachers so that his people can know what they're looking at when it comes along, so they can identify it, and so that they can be prepared to answer, to give a hope, to give an answer to the hope that is within them to those who are coming from this really complicated worldview, that it will be difficult for many of us to really get our thinking around because we are so used to thinking within a modernist, logical worldview, biblical worldview, where we believe in truth and knowledge and we believe in absolutes. 
And they don't believe any of that. And they think that by definition, if you believe those things, you're a racist, you're a sexist, and all these other bad words that they want to call us. And whenever anybody resorts to just calling people names, you know they don't have an argument. But they are very intimidating, and they have captured the seats of power in most of our universities. And this is being taught everywhere. And thank God we live in a state that I understand the Senate just passed a law making it illegal to teach critical theory and critical race theory in the public schools of Texas. I, can, I, I want to read it to see how far it goes because it needs to be, if they, if they make it illegal to teach it at the state schools like the University of Texas and Texas A&M and Stephen F. Austin where I went and Texas Tech, there's going to be an explosion because all of those schools are, in, are deeply immersed in teaching critical theory which is why it's extremely dangerous to send your kids off to these schools without the adequate preparation so that they can deal with it. And it's hard for many of us as adults to deal with this. So that takes us to the third chapter. It's the third chapter, and this is a parenthetical statement by the Apostle Paul where he is he, he has ended his explanation of the new man, new body, new building, new temple that is being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit at the end of chapter 2. And he says, for this reason, that is because of what God is doing in building this new building, this new entity. And then he talks about, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And then there's this long line there that that's called an M-dash because the rest of it's going to be a parenthetical statement. And this parenthetical statement, see, let me just go through this. I've already said that, uh, is down in, is going to be picked up again in 3.14. So 3.2 to 3.13 is all related to talking about what God is doing through him, even though he's a prisoner, and that they shouldn't be discouraged because he's in prison, because God's using that to advance his plan. So don't get discouraged. And that is, we talked about this, that this is really a rationale God has given us that that when things don't go well, we have to remember God's still in charge and God is going to use his plan for his glory better than our plan for our glory, basically. So this is what we see here. And he talks about the fact, if you had heard of the dispensing or the administration of the grace of God, which was given to me, and that is really just a tight phrase that refers to his apostolic mission and message. That's the grace that God gave to him, called him as an apostle for the purpose that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, not just to him, but all of the apostles that now there was this new entity, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, and there's no longer a basis for racial, gender, or economic discrimination within the body of Christ. Verse 5, he says, This was not made known in other ages to the sons of men, but it's now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. There's something distinctive about this dispensation. And in verse 6, he says that what's distinctive is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. They are fellow members of the same body with the Jews. 
and they are fellow partakers of the promises in Christ through the gospel. It's a new entity. And Paul says it's of this message that he became a minister according to his apostolic message and ministry, according to the gift of the grace of God which was given to me by the effective working of his power. And then when we get down to verse 14, he's going to come back to his main thought. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to pray for the Ephesian believers in uh, in these following verses. I think I put that slide in the wrong place. Um, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And here he says that it's the content of his prayer is that God would grant them according to the wealth of his glory to be strengthened with might through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Well, why does he want us to be strengthened with might through the Holy Spirit in the inner man? Well, that's going to produce the first result, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is the idea not of the indwelling of Christ, which every believer has and never loses, but for that to be actuated to the to where you are enjoying the fellowship as you walk with the Lord in your life. It is the richness of his indwelling presence. That's the first result. The second is that you have already having been rooted and grounded in love. It's a perfect tense. He's reminding them, see, when you were saved, you were rooted and grounded in love. And the reason you want to have this experiential, because it's spiritual growth, uh, uh, with walk with Christ in your life is so that the next result, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints the extent of God's love. See, that's what he's saying when he says the width and length and depth and height. He's talking about the dimensions, and God's love is infinite. We'll never fully understand it. But that's, that's the second result. So we have to be strengthened with might in the inner man first. That produces a result where we have a rich indwelling of God the Son and a rich fellowship with him. But that's towards a further result of being able to comprehend his love. And the ultimate purpose is so that we can know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, which he's just saying that you may be filled with God's character. We're to be conformed to the character of Christ. God the Holy Spirit is producing that, and that brings us to his ending doxology, that this is, goes, goes beyond anything you and I can ever ask or think. We can't imagine how great it is. We can't imagine how much Christ has given us. It's beyond our comprehension but we can understand a lot of things about it, but you only get it from studying the Word. That's why we need to be immersed in the Word as much as possible, day in, day out, because we have a very short amount of time here on this earth. And God wants to use that to bring us to as great a maturity as possible because that is what prepares us for eternity. And so because of all of that, Paul is going to say, therefore, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In light of this, this is who we are. This is our identity. Walk in conformity to it.
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we have learned so much as we look at this passage about who we are in Christ, what you've provided for us in Christ, and this distinctive new entity, the church, that you have created, where in this church there's no room for racism or sexism, there's no room for any kind of arrogance or any kind of of, uh, prejudice, discrimination towards others in the body of Christ, for we are all one in Christ, and yet this is being attacked. Satan is so alive and well, and he is attacking this in the most subtle and the most sophisticated ways, and so many in our culture are buying into this, and they have no idea what they're doing. They, they have no, no idea that what they're signing on to is what it is. They just know that they don't want to be called a racist. They don't want to be called a bad name. They want everybody to get along. They don't realize the horrible evil that comes with this package. And, Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of those that we know who have gotten sucked into this, for I think every one of us knows at least one or two people who are buying into this. Give us wisdom to know how to deal with them, how to communicate the gospel to them, how to encourage them and without arguing, but in showing and demonstrating your fullness, your love to them. And that means not letting them fall into the trap of this evil religion, for that's what it is. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth, enable us to talk clearly and logically and cogently with those who need to hear the truth and are responsive. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.